Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. John 3, Jesus encounters someone who was seeking. He encounters a religious insider. John 3 is one of the most famous passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. If you don't know many Scripture verses, and you may not be able to quote John 3.16 by heart, but you know of John 3.16. few verses have been referenced more often in the course of human history. If you watch athletic events like the Super Bowl, you're going to see people with signs up that say John 3.16. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the Bible in a nutshell. It is the clear definite explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His one and only Son, His begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What I want us to do this morning is not just look at that isolated verse, but look at the conversation that led up to that verse. Jesus, as that verse is declared and affirmed, may have been uttered by Jesus' own lips, may have been John's after adding as kind of an insight following that conversation. In any case, it came directly from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God instructing or working through John to pin these words down for our understanding and our benefit later. In any case, it is carried along by the context of Jesus encounter with this man who was trying to understand something about a Messiah, trying to understand something about a miracle worker, about a teacher, and he wanted some insights, so he came to Jesus to meet with him. Let me commend something to you. Dr. Mike invited me to watch the the series The Chosen uh, more than a year ago now, and probably one of the most powerful scenes in all of those episodes is the 10 minute or so scene where Jesus and Nicodemus are playing out this text of Scripture. It's powerful, it's impactful, it's emotive as Jesus converses with this religious leader who longed to know more about what it meant and what Jesus was doing in life. I would commend that series to you. I almost started to show that scene in our worship service today. We just don't have enough time to do all of that. But let us read what this text says. John chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 21 in this encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I want you to know, first of all, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the Sanhedrin. He is a religious leader, and the religious leaders didn't really like Jesus, and that would uh, last all the way up until Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, even after that. Uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. May have indicated that he didn't want people to know what was going on. Certainly, thematically, it indicates that when Nicodemus came, he was dark, spiritually dark, and in need of something that he did not yet have. But notice he came with a sense of humility. Teacher, rabbi, he's speaking to an uneducated, by the world's standards, by the Jewish standards, an uneducated Galilean carpenter. 
and he calls him rabbi, we know that you come from God. There's a humility. I mean, Nicodemus is not coming in an antagonistic fashion. He's not coming to push back. He's not coming to argue with. He needs some understanding, but he's coming with a sense of humility, seeking after some information, seeking after some insight from someone who's doing miracles, who's doing things that no one else has ever done. So he's coming with a sense of humility. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus. Notice his first response. He doesn't say, thank you, Nicodemus, for understanding that I'm something special. He doesn't commend him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one is ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, described the beginning stages of this encounter this way. He said, Predominant religious thought in Jesus' day affirmed that all Jews would be admitted to the kingdom apart from those guilty of deliberate apostasy or extraordinary wickedness. In other words, get this, the Jewish people believed because they were a part of the family of Abraham that they would make it into God's kingdom. That was their idea, their concept. They thought because of their heritage, because of their history, because of their nationality, because of who their mom and dad were. If they did not apostatize and run from the Jewish faith, or if they did not act in extreme wickedness, they would automatically make it into the kingdom. That was their idea. That was the predominant Jewish thought. I think that's how Nicodemus even came to Jesus. But notice this. Um, Carson continues, But here was Jesus telling Nicodemus, a respected and conscientious member, not only of Israel, but of the Sanhedrin, that he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus cut to the very heart of Nicodemus' question. 
Nicodemus came trying to find out who this rabbi was, who this teacher was, who did miracles, who this teacher was that presumed to give instruction and guidance and insight to the people that were around. And Jesus cut to the very heart of that question and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. What I want us to do this morning is look at three reasons why we must be born again. And we're going to give an application of that, and then we're going to close with a story that I think will tie it all together. First reason we need to be born again is we need to be born again because we are dead in our sins. You must be born again, a new birth. And Nicodemus' question was, how can a man be born when he is old? He goes on to question what is going on in this scenario. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we need to be made alive again. We need to be born again, and it's the work of the Spirit that does that. The the technical term, the theological term for what Jesus is stating here is regeneration. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2, that wonderful passage of Scripture, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, yet God has made you alive. He has given you life. And what Jesus is saying with utter clarity that Paul would echo in the book of Ephesians, in his letter to the Ephesians, is that in order for salvation to take place, in order for entrance into the kingdom of God to take place, for any person being born in the world, we need to be made alive. We need to be brought back from the dead. We need to be given life. We need new birth. The beautiful thing about this, this is not something you and I can do. We can't make it happen to ourselves. We can't cause it to take place. It's the work of the Spirit. Sometimes we get lost in the familiar stories of Scripture. What I mean by lost is, we we know it's there. We know this is Nicodemus and Jesus having a conversation. We know John 3.16 is here. But something I noticed for the very first time in my study this week, in John chapter 3, is that this is a gloriously, theologically rich text of Scripture. If you pay attention, Jesus acknowledges that salvation is the work of the Trinity. He says in this first section, this conversation, that we have to be born in the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's work. It's God's job through the Holy Spirit to make us alive, to give us new birth. If we look in just a few moments at verses 14 and 15, the Son is the one that is lifted up. He's the one that died on a cross. He's the one that we look to for salvation. So the Spirit is at work to regenerate us and make us alive. The Son is at work to die on a cross and and stand in between us and God, giving us the opportunity for salvation. In John 3.16, For God, the Father, so loved the world that He gave. God gave, God the Father gave His only Son. In other words, this is a deeply theological section of Scripture where Jesus is affirming not only our need to be born again, but we need every person of the Trinity to be powerfully at work in bringing us to a place where we would surrender our lives in faith to Jesus Christ. We need to be born again. We need to be born of the Spirit. You must be born again. And, and Jesus And his statement doesn't just make this a wonderful interaction with one man. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again singular. You must be born again. Personally, directly, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But when he repeats that phrase in verse 8, he uses the plural you. 
you must be born again. Meaning that this is not just something that Jesus said to Nicodemus 2,000 years ago. This is something by extension. Every person that's ever read the Gospel of John, every person that's ever heard the message of the Gospel of John 3 preached, Jesus is saying to every one of us, if we want to see entrance into the kingdom of God, we must be born again. Why do we need to be born again? Because our problem is that we need spiritual life that we can't bring about in our own selves. We're dead in our sins. We're separated from God. We need to be made alive. See, if you really get at the heart of part of what Nicodemus is asking, some of what the disciples were struggling with, certainly what the other religious leaders and the people of Israel were struggling with, they were struggling with what is this idea of God's kingdom? What does it mean? And in their view, they thought that the kingdom meant that God was going to send a Messiah to overthrow the Roman leadership. See, the people of Israel were God's chosen people. They had been God's chosen people for thousands of years, all the way back through Abraham, and then through Moses, and then through the rescue from Egypt, and then through giving them to the promised land, and even through the judgments, and even through sending them to exile. They were God's people. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day were longing for a political Messiah. Their idea of the kingdom was someone that they could follow, was someone that would overthrow Rome, was someone that would give them back their divinely or, 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 uh, ordained glory of being God's people. That was their idea of the kingdom. They wanted a political salvation. Jesus cut through all of that. He said, our problem is not that we need a different ruler rather than Rome. Our problem is not that we need Israel to be established in her kingdom. Jesus cut through all that and He said, My kingdom is not that kingdom. Now, thank goodness, His kingdom one day will be that kingdom. The book of Revelation testifies to that. It's glorious that God would give John that picture. And John wrote this text here. That Jesus will return to set up an earthly kingdom and rule over all. But the beginning point of Jesus' kingdom and His ministry is not political. It is spiritual. Folks, our problem is not who our president is or what our Congress decides or, or the, the, the movings and the goings of the Supreme Court. Even as much as we may like the ruling that happened on Friday, I can assure you the Supreme Court's going to change. It's changed in your lifetime. It's changed in my lifetime. They've made decisions that you and I don't agree with and we don't like. And, and you know what our tendency is as Christians who live in what we believe is a free country? Our, our tendency is to think, man, our biggest problem is our political atmosphere. And if that would just be fixed, man, we'd be better off. Jesus cut through all that and said, no, that's not our problem. Our problem is that we're dead in sins and we need the Holy Spirit of God to make us alive. He goes into that statement, you need to be born of the Spirit and of water. And that's confused scholars and theologians alike over the years. What does that mean? Does it mean that we need to be born naturally and then born spiritually as some have taken it? Does it mean that we need to be baptized, born of water and born of spirit? I don't think it means either of those things. I think the clearest explanation of that meaning is Jesus was talking to a Jewish religious leader who understood the need for spiritual and religious cleansing that can only come from God. If you go back to the book of Ezekiel 36, 
Jesus or God made this claim, for out of you, talking about the people of Israel, I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And he goes in 26 and says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart from you, your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move on you and for you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. When Jesus said, you need to be born of the water and spirit, it's simply an affirmation that we need to be made clean by God. You and I cannot clean ourselves. You and I cannot make ourselves alive. You and I cannot change the condition of our heart. It is only something that God can do. We must be born again. Dane Ortland put it this way. He said, Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or to wake sleepy people or to advise confused people or to inspire bored people or to spur on lazy people or to educate ignorant people. Jesus was sent to raise dead people. If you're here today, you've not yet become a follower of Jesus, it's because you're spiritually dead and only God can make you alive. Only the Spirit of God can do that work in your heart that brings you to life and to salvation. Some of you have have over the years just struggled with the fact of loved ones who don't yet know Christ. You've been burdened by the fact of neighbors who have not yet come to faith in Jesus. And some of us have been in revival settings and church settings where where we have felt the preacher manipulating the circumstance, trying every with every bit of energy to get someone to respond. And I understand that and I sympathize with that. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear here in this text. The work of regeneration is not my work. I can't save you. I can't rescue your soul. I can't make you alive. It's not even your work. You can't make yourself alive. You can't change your own heart. You can't come to God in your own righteousness or rightness and see God. Only God can make one alive. You know what that should do? It should drive us to our knees in prayer, begging God to do what He desires to do, which is save people. This past week, Vacation Bible School, Folks, we have so many children in the life of our church. God has blessed us with families and bringing families. And just love seeing kids. If you come to the 11 o'clock service, they're going to sing a little bit for us, with us, because of some songs they've sung in our worship, in our, in our VBS worship this week. It's a beautiful thing. But children, many children, even children growing up in the life of the church, have not yet come to faith in Jesus. And over the last several months, many of those children have talked to our church leaders and talk to their moms and dads and ask questions and asked about salvation and asked about eternal life. And there's this long prayer list that I have for children and for teenagers in the life of our church and adults in the life of our church connected to our church. And some of you have those prayer lists. Some of you are praying for those children. And I just want to tell you, God saves when God chooses to save. He makes alive. And this past Thursday night, several of those children, at least five, probably six, and a few more that we're going to continue to have conversations with, made a public profession of faith in Jesus, and they're going to be baptized within the next month. Because it is God's job to make us alive. We must be born again, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit who does that. Listen, we must be born again. Must be born again because we're dead in our sins. We're tempted, folks, to think that the biggest problems in our world are out there. But please hear me. Our greatest problem 
is that we need to be made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Let me give you a second reason why we must be born again. We must be born again because, quite frankly, we cannot save ourselves. You and I can't bring ourselves up out of our own sinfulness. We live in a contemporary American culture where this idea of pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, making your own way in life, building your own business, making your own financial stability, doing all of those things is part and parcel of our culture. And there's not a thing wrong with that when it comes to an economic sphere or a work sphere, but if we take that mindset and drop it into spirituality, we will find ourselves apart from God because we cannot save ourselves. You and I can't make ourselves clean. You could be here at church all you wanted to be. You could do all good things and you cannot save yourself. That's what Jesus said in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Listen, you and I can't fix our own sin problem because we can't save ourselves. Yet our world around us says there are all kind of other issues in the world. Certainly there are political issues. Certainly there are issues with people not having enough education. Certainly there are issues with people not behaving right. And if we think our primary problem is education, then we work hard to fix that. If we think our primary problem is moral, then we pursue right and just behaviors. But our primary problem is something that you and I can't do anything about. We can't rescue ourselves from our own sinfulness. We can't cleanse ourselves from our own unrighteousness. We can't be good enough to wash away our wickedness. And Jesus illustrated this point by going back to an image that took place in Numbers chapter 21. The people of Israel in Numbers 21 grumbled against God. They had already moved through 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They had, as we, as we have, have thought about and even referenced last week, remember they got to the land of Canaan. And they decided they weren't going to believe God, and so they ended up wandering again for 40 years. But this is after that. This is after their wanderings. This is why they're walking into the land of Canaan, or about to walk into the land of Canaan. And they finally got fed up with the manna. They grumbled against God, and they grumbled against the food that God had given them. They grumbled against God's provision. They grumbled against God's leaders. And God issued judgment. He sent among them serpents. And some of you are thinking, man, thank goodness I was not a part of that day because I don't want to be around snakes at all. But these were fiery serpents. These were serpents with venom. And those serpents would slither around the camp and they would bite the Israelites out of judgment for their grumbling and their unbelief. And they were dying. One after one, one after one, one after one, dying from their snake bites. God told Moses, Moses, here's how you provide rescue for those people. You take a a stake, a pole, and you put on the top of it a bronze serpent. You put it in the camp. You tell the people of Israel, all they have to do is look at that serpent and they'll be healed. All you have to do is look at that serpent and you'll be healed. Didn't take obedience. Didn't take goodness. Didn't take righteousness. Didn't take sacrifice. Didn't take any work the people of Israel could do. It took looking at the provision that God orchestrated. Jesus used that illustration. He said, as, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
Imagery is simply this. Jesus is saying, you cannot save yourselves. I alone can save you. I'm the means by which you are rescued. That word lifted up is used throughout the New Testament, used throughout the Gospel of John. And in every case it's used, it's used of Jesus being lifted up on the cross and lifted up in worship. You know how God saves individuals? You know what God uses to rescue and redeem and bring to life? It just blows me away. The Holy Spirit makes us alive through His work, but His work connected with the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is lifted up in our song and in our sermons, when Jesus is declared His death on the cross, His resurrection, when the Son of Man is lifted up, He draws all men to Himself. Folks, we need to be born again because we can't save ourselves. Try as you might. Work as hard as you want to work. Be as good as you want to be. Read the Bible as much as you want to read it. Go to church as often as you dare. Do, 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 do. You can't save yourself. That was the point of the serpent in the wilderness. Look, hope and trust in God and He'll rescue you. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, you don't need to do better. You need to look at the one who has done the best. You don't need to make yourself right because you can't make yourself right enough. So you need to look to the one who's already made you right with God if you'll just trust Him. We must be born again because we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves because we can't make ourselves clean. As good as you could do today or tomorrow or next week, you can't do anything about that sin yesterday or the day before or that really terrible sin that's in your past. You can't clean yourself of it. We need to be cleaned in a way that is outward, that that the God does, outside of us, I mean, something that we can't do ourselves. We need God to do that, and God chose to do that through His Son, Jesus. We must be born again because we can't save ourselves. Thirdly, we must be born again because we love the wrong things. John 3.16 is a beautiful affirmation for God what so loved the world. A lot of times we think of that word so as in the extent of God's love. God so loved. He loved us so much, making the emphasis about us. That's not what that word so means in the Greek language. It carries with it the idea for in this manner, God loved us. Meaning that the emphasis is on what God did, not on how much God is emotionally attached to those of us that, are, that He cares about. Now, He does love us. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying the emphasis is on what God did. And in what manner did God show His love for us? He gave His own Son. Do you get that? God Himself took His only Son and He gave Him for us. That if we trust in Him, we'll be forgiven and we'll have new life. Verse 17, God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. He sent Jesus that we might have life, not that the world would be condemned. But here's the, here's the rough part. Get this, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever doesn't believe, verse 18, is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the Son of God. Unbelief is the sin that will separate you from God forever. That's what John's saying. And this is judgment, verse 19, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We need to be born again, folks, because we love the wrong things. God so loved agape, selfless love, loved us that He gave His only Son, Jesus, that we might not perish but have eternal life. The exact same word for love 
is used of us in the very verses later to reflect the things that we love. Because we love the wrong things. We love things that will drive us to eternal damnation. We love things that will drive us to pride and arrogance. We love evil things. If you, if you look at the encounters that Jesus had just in the Gospel of John, you'll discover in chapter 4 a lady who loved all the wrong things. She loved men and she loved pleasure and she loved what she thought she could get out of those relationships. It wasn't good enough. It's evil. It's unrighteous. If you look at Nicodemus here in the text, he loved the praise of men. He loved the positions of leadership and knowledge and power. Loved the wrong things. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, sin, and this is why we need a Savior, sin is looking to something else besides God for your salvation. It is putting yourself in the place of God. It is becoming your own Savior and Lord, as it were. That's the biblical definition of sin, the first of the Ten Commandments. One way to do this is to break all the moral rules in your pursuit of pleasure and happiness like the woman at the well. This makes sex or money or power into a kind of salvation. But then there is the religious way to be your Savior and Lord. That has to act as if your good life and your moral achievement will essentially require God to bless you and answer your prayers the way you want. In this case, you're looking to your moral goodness and efforts to give you the significance and security that non-religious people look to sex, money, and power to give them. Hear this. What is insidious about this is that religious people constantly talk about trusting in God. But if you think your own goodness is even contributing to your salvation, then you are actually being your own Savior you are trusting in yourself. We don't like to think of ourselves as being desperately in need of something that could come that can only come from outside of us. We like to think that we partner maybe with God or that we pursue some kind of physical or, or emotional or psychological uh, kind of, kind of uh, a high point where that saves us and rescues us. That's what we like to think. Folks, if that's what we're looking after, like the woman at the well or like Nicodemus, if we're longing for some kind of experience that we can get on our own, we'll never get there. We'll only get to condemnation because we love the wrong things. What are some of the wrong things that we love? Is it anger or resentment? Is it holding on to some kind of demand for retributive justice for somebody that has wronged you? Is it something you can't let go of? What, about, what if it's lust or immorality? Something that's hidden that nobody else knows about you, but you know about yourself. Are you holding on to that? Are you holding on to something that, that is immoral or ungodly? What about the tenth commandment? Do you covet things that... I mean, I mean, people can see your outward behavior, but they can't look at your heart. Do you long for something somebody else has? See, folks, we love the wrong things. And if we're holding on to those things that are wrong, we'll find ourselves condemned, separated from God. But maybe it's more insidious than that. Is it self-righteousness? Pride? Are you looking back at all the ways you behaved 
to, 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 to try to honor God. This was my teenage experience, folks. I thought I was saved because I prayed and I read the Bible and I taught and I preached and I did all these good things and I argued with God for six years about my own soul. I was doing these good things. God must save me. Folks, that's not the way salvation works. We must be born again because we love the wrong things. We must be born again because we can't save ourselves. We must be born again because we're dead in our sins. It's only something that God can do from outside of us to change us on the inside. Maybe you're here today and you think you're better than most and that's why you deserve to be saved. Maybe you think God will accept you because of your family or church membership or your good, this good deed this week. But the gospel, the good news, John 3 makes it clear, utterly clear, that unbelief in Jesus is a sin. And if you think you're good enough because of your deeds or your heritage or your comparative morality, then you're believing in yourself for eternal life and you'll stand condemned. Please hear me. If you're trying to save yourself, you'll fall short because only God can give you new life. You love evil things. I love evil things, which is why we need to be born again. But I want to tell you some really good news. John 3 says, we, 319, 20, says, we love evil things, but God loves evil people. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're holding on to, no matter what that person that you've been praying for for years is holding on to, God loves them. His love and compassion is sufficient to redeem and save if we will trust in Him. John Calvin put it this way. He said, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive so that it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we do not obtain pardon from Him. Folks, the problem is not with what God has done or not done. The problem is with us. Application is very simply this. We need to believe on the Lord Jesus and be born again. God's job is to make us alive. Our job is to trust, to believe, to put our faith in Him. I shared this with our children on Thursday night and parents that were here. Folks, we need to admit that we're a sinner. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves clean. We need to believe in the Lord Jesus that He died on the cross and rose from the dead to give us life. And see, we need to follow Jesus. We need to commit our life to be a follower of Christ forever. And if you're here today and you've not yet trusted Jesus to be your Savior, I beg of you, don't walk out of here without trusting in Christ, without following Him. Why must we? Because we never know when it is that we're going to step out of this life and move into the next life. I heard an old legend once about a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to the marketplace on an assignment. It wasn't much after that that the merchant came running back, or the, the, rather the servant came running back to the merchant. And he said, a woman jostled me there in the marketplace and I turned around and it was death. And death made a threatening gesture at me, Master. And, and I'm scared and I'm frightened. Will you let me borrow your horse so I can ride to Samara and so that I can separate myself, so that I can escape death? And so the Master lent his servant, the merchant lent his servant the horse, and the, the servant rode off as fast as he could ride, as fast as he could gallop to Samara. 
A little bit later that day, the merchant went to the marketplace himself. And as he was at the marketplace, he noticed death standing there. And he walked up to death and he, he said to death, Why did you frighten my servant with a threatening gesture? Why did you scare my servant away? Death answered, It wasn't a threatening gesture. It was a start of surprise. For I was surprised to see your servant in Baghdad because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samarra. None of us knows when our day of death will come. And the only way that we can be ready for death is to be born again. If that's you, don't let today go by without coming to Jesus in faith and asking Him to give you eternal life. If that's not you today, if you're saved, and many of you are, don't let today go by without praying that God will do that work, that born-again work in the life of someone you know needs eternal life. Stand with me if you will. Father, I don't know when my number will be called. I don't know when those who are gathered here today will breathe their last breath. But I know this. If we've not been made right with You, if we've not been born again, if we've not put our faith and trust in Jesus, then we will do so, enter into that death condemned because of our unbelief. Lord, only You can change that about us. Only You can make us alive. Only You can help us believe. And we ask You today that You would. For one in this room, for those that will gather at 9.30, for those that will gather at 11, for those friends and neighbors and relatives that we know that need Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Pray, Heavenly Father, that You'd open our lips to share and bend our knees to pray. Pray that You'll do a work that only You can do, which is save and redeem and rescue. Pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 